بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له ونشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى اله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا اما بعد فاعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ان الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا ايها الذين امنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما صليت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما كما باركت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد respected listeners assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh Inshallah today we'll be beginning the reading and study of the famous hadith of Hijrah by Umm al-Mu'minin Aisha radiyallahu anha from Sahih al-Bukhari. For those of you who have Sahih al-Bukhari with you it's hadith number 3905 from Kitab Manaqib al-Ansar, the book of the merits of the Ansar, and specifically the chapter Babu Hijrat al-Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa ashabihi ilal-Madinah, chapter of the emigration of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and his companions to Medina. And for those of you who are following using the abridged version of Sahih al-Bukhari at Tajreed al-Sari'ah, then the hadith number is 1593. 1593. In this chapter, Babu Hijrat al-Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa ashabihi ilal Madina, Imam Bukhari rahmatullahi alayhi is mentioning the obvious and including those ahadith which are related to this particular chapter heading of the Prophet ﷺ's hijrah and emigration to Medina and that of his companions. There are a number of hadith in this chapter. We won't be reading all of them. I've selected this particular hadith of Umm Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha. This hadith has been quoted by Imam Bukhari rahmatullahi alayhi in a number of places throughout his book. But the other narrations are all abridged narrations of the same hadith. This, this narration in this particular chapter and book is the full and lengthy version of the hadith. And that's the one which we will be reading. So Imam Bukhari rahmatullahi alayhi says, Babu Hijrat al-Nabiya sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, chapter of the emigration of the Prophet, Hijrah. 
وأصحابه and his companions إلى المدينة to مدينة. Now, Hijrah, that's the key word here. The word Hijrah comes from Hajra Yajra, Hajran, wa Hijrana, which means to cut off, to shun, to abandon, to leave behind. And that's the original meaning of Hijrah. The idea of traveling or emigrating, leaving one place and taking up residence elsewhere. The meaning of Hijrah in that sense is secondary. Otherwise, the primary original meaning of Hijrah is to shun, to leave, to abandon. And that's attested to in the Qur'an. In fact, the two earliest surahs of the Qur'an, two of the earliest surahs of the Qur'an, Surah Al-Muddathir and Surah Al-Muzammil, both of them contain a reference to this word. In Surah Al-Muddathir, Ya ayyuhal muddathir, qum fa'anzir, wa rabbaka fa'kabbir, wa thiyabaka fa'tahir, wa rudza fa'chur. Allah addressing the Prophet wasallam, tells him to rise at night. It tells him to rise and to warn and to glorify his Lord. And he says, And your clothes do purify. And impurity, shun, abandon. And in Surah Al-Muzammil, وَاصْبِرْ عَلَى مَا يَقُولُونَ وَهْجُرْهُمْ هَجْرًا جَمِيلًا And be patient over what they say. Be patient at what they say. Referring to the Quraysh. وَهْجُرْهُمْ هَجْرًا جَمِيلًا And shun them, a noble shunning. I leave them. Do not say anything in return. Be noble, be more honorable. وَهْجُرْهُمْ And leave them. Hajran Jamila, a noble leaving, a noble shunning. So, and again in other verses of the Quran, Allah subhanahu, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses this word, and it's mentioned in the Quran, in its original meaning of abandoning or being abandoned, of shunning, of leaving aside. So that's the original meaning of hijrah. And then, as a secondary meaning, it came to be known even amongst the Arabs before Islam. So even before Islam, even before the Hijrah, the Arabs did take the meaning of it, Hijrah, i.e. leaving one place and taking up residence elsewhere. Normally it was used for the Bedouin who would l- abandon their nomadic lifestyle and take up a sedentary residence in any one of the townships or cities. So even before Islam, the Arabs used to refer to that as hijrah. But the original meaning is to shun, to abandon. And I've expanded on this because this is quite important in understanding the significance of the hijrah. So chapter of the hijrah, the emigration of the Prophet wasallam and his companions to Medina. Throughout the life of the Prophet wasallam, there were many incidents which 
were significant in their own right, but in retrospect and through the vision of history, these individual incidents proved to be momentous and a great watershed in their own right and life-changing for those who were involved and world-changing for others. And one of these was undoubtedly the emigration of the Prophet ﷺ from Mecca to Medina. That marked a remarkable change. That was a real watershed. Everything changed. That one journey of the Prophet ﷺ changed the history of the people of Mecca, the history of the people of Medina, the history of all the Arabs. In fact, the history of the world. And this is why Muslims especially accord great significance to that one single journey of Hijrah. And subhanAllah, the Muslims, in fact, even during the time of the Prophet wasallam, the Arabs, they followed their calendar. But being a very undeveloped society in comparison to the larger cultures and civilizations at the time, the Arabs would refer to dates as going back, coming from or going back from. So they'd normally say in the year of this or a few years after this. So these were their pointers and markers, major incidents. In fact, the as I mentioned in Surah Al-Fil, in the tafsir of Surah Al-Fil, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protected the Kaaba from the advance and the invasion of Abraha. <coughs> Miraculously, the Kaaba was saved. That was a momentous occasion. It was a huge incident. So the Arabs would refer to that as Amul Fil, the year of the elephant, and they would normally say three years after the after Amul Fil, ten years after Amul Fil. So major incidents would act as watersheds, as markers for the Arabs to calculate their dates and years and months from. So the Prophet ﷺ's birth, the year of the elephant, etc. And this is why later, the Muslims standardized the calendar and the calculation of all dates from this one single momentous occasion of the hijrah of Rasulullah ﷺ. Now, as we will learn when we actually read the hadith, the... Hijrah took place in Rabi'ul Awwal, in the third month of the Islamic lunar calendar. But when the calendar was fixed, it was fixed not from Rabi'ul Awwal, but rather from two months before, from Muharram. So it was fixed in the beginning of the year in which the Hijrah took place, not in the actual, not on, not from the day and the month of the actual hijrah. So the hijrah took place in Rabi'ul Awwal. The most common date is the 12th of Rabi'ul Awwal, although there are other opinions, but in Rabi'ul Awwal. And the Muslims place the calendar 
from the beginning of that year. Now, so from the first of Muharram, we regard we regard the first of Muharram as the beginning of the new year, and that's marked by the Hijrah of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Now, Subhanallah. I had promised some time ago that I would be commenting on the hadith of Hijrah in detail. Today we begin the hadith of Hijrah from Sahih al-Bukhari. And since after Maghrib Salah, it is also the first of Muharram of the 1436th year after the Hijrah. So this is actually the first day of the new Islamic calendar of the new Islamic year. Now, there are many, there are some details which we would need to be aware of before we actually read the hadith as an introduction. Why was the Prophet ﷺ eventually compelled to leave Medina? And what did the hijrah mean? As I've explained on other occasions, the hijrah wasn't simply a relocation from A to B. It wasn't simply a journey. It wasn't merely taking up residence in another city. The hijrah of the Prophet ﷺ and his companions meant a lot. It was so difficult and it was so momentous that forever the Qur'an, even before the hadith, the Qur'an, Allah in the Qur'an has more or less divided Muslims into two groups. Those who did the hijrah and those who never. Even Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa When Makkah was conquered, he declared, La hijrah ba'd al-fatih. There is no hijrah, there is no emigration after the conquest. So even then, after the conquest of Mecca, anyone who travelled from any part of the world and joined the Prophet ﷺ, assisted him, took up residence in the city of Medina alongside him, pledged his loyalty to the Prophet ﷺ, and became a devoted, sincere follower, still, his position would never, even though in a way he did hijrah too, of course he did hijrah, he left behind his home city, his birthplace, and he travelled to Medina, from any part of the world, any part of Arabia. Still, his position would not equate to the position of any of the Meccans or the others around Mecca and Medina who did hijrah to the Prophet ﷺ before the conquest of Mecca. So in, in, that, in that declaration, the Prophet ﷺ wasn't denying the validity or the concept of hijrah after the conquest of Mecca, far from it. But he was distinguishing between the true hijrah, which is mentioned again and again, whose Emigrants are mentioned again and again in the Qur'an and who enjoyed that superior privileged position. So even the Ansar Sahaba radiallahu anhum, even though they assisted the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, 
from the very first day, in fact, before his arrival in Al-Madinat Al-Munawwara, still their position was not equal to that of the Muhajirun. The Muhajirun are always mentioned first. The Prophet ﷺ always gave them privilege and preference. That's why Allah says, وَالَّذِينَ تَبَوَّأُوا الدَّارَ وَالْإِيمَانَ مِنْ قَبْلِهِمْ يُحِبُّونَ مَنْ هَاجَرَ إِلَيْهِمْ وَلَا يَجِدُونَ فِي صُدُورِهِمْ حَاجَةً مِمَّا أُوتُوا That those, Allah praises the Ansar, Sahaba radiyallahu anhum of Medina, that those who took up, who adopted Iman, and who inhabited the city of Medina, before the Muhajirun, they love those who have emigrated to them. And they do not harbor any. Haja here means hasid. They do not harbor any envy. They do not harbor any envy towards the muhajirun for what they have been given. Now what does that verse mean? It's exactly what I'm referring to. That even though the Ansar Sahaba radiallahu anhum, they sacrificed so much. Before the hijrah, as I will explain as part of the introduction to the hijrah, they traveled from Medina to Mecca. And they pledged their loyalty and their willingness to support and to defend the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa First a group of 12, and then a group of 75, including women. They, they invited the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa to Medina. And not only that, but they promised to defend him with their lives, to protect him as they would protect their own family and children. So... They assisted the Prophet ﷺ even before he did hijrah to Medina. And from the very first day, even though they were under no obligation, they traveled with the Messenger ﷺ wherever he wished and wherever, whenever he needed them. They never held back. They did not falter. They did not hesitate. They sacrificed their lives. Many of them suffered as a result of their belief in Islam and as a result of their supporting and assisting the Messenger Yet despite all their sacrifices, they would always witness the Muhajirun being given preference. So the Prophet would speak of the Muhajirun first. The Qur'an spoke of the Muhajirun. Before this, he spoke of the Ansar. In gatherings, the Prophet ﷺ would reserve the best of places towards the front of the gathering for the Muhajirun. They were his chief consultants. Whenever the Prophet ﷺ would consult and confer with the companions, he would do so primarily with the Muhajirun. They were the leaders amongst the Muslims. They were the privileged. They were the ones who were given preference. Even though, in a way, they were, they were immigrants. They had emigrated, so they were immigrants. And this is a very point that Abdullah ibn Uwayy ibn Salul tried to play on, on a number of occasions, including on the occasion of Ghazwat ibn al-Mustaliq. When, as I've explained in the commentary of Hadith al-Ifq, 
So he tried to play on this very point. And when a disagreement arose between an Ansari and a Muhajir, he exploited that. And he used some very offensive words about the Muslims and even about, about the Muhajirun and even about the Prophet ﷺ. And he said of the Muhajirun that the example of the Muhajirun, he said, look at them. We have invited them. So we adopted them. We accommodated them. They came to us as immigrants, as penniless, in need of shelter, of protection. We took them in, we sheltered them, we helped them, we fed them and clothed them, and now they are lording it over us. Then he said, the example of us and the muhajirun is as the Arabs say, سَمِّنْ kalbak يَأْكُلْك Fatten your dog so that one day he will devour you. So we feed them only for them to turn against us. And then he spoke disparagingly of the Prophet ﷺ too, threatening to drive him from the city of Medina. So even the munafiqun would try to exploit this point, that the muhajirun were immigrants. They were not part of the indigenous population of Medina. It was the Ansar who sheltered them, who clothed them, who gave them protection, who even shared their wealth with them. They opened their homes to them. They opened up their city to them. And yet, it was the Muhajirun who were always given preference. Yet, the it was only the Munafiqun, the hypocrites, who tried to exploit this point. Otherwise, the Ansar, Sahaba, عنهم, by the testimony of the Qur'an, despite all their sacrifices, and despite seeing and witnessing the, the Muhajirun being given preference over them all the time, their hearts and minds remain clean and pure towards the Muhajirun. They did not harbor any resentment or any envy towards the Muhajirun Sahaba. And that's by the testimony of the Qur'an. So Allah says, not only did they not harbor any Envy or reservation, they actually love them dearly. So Allah says, "Yuhibuna man ilayhim." They love those who have emigrated to them. And they do not harbor any reservation, any hasad, jealousy, any need in their heart towards the muhajirun for what they have been given over them. So, and the reason they respected that and accepted that is that they recognized that the muhajirun had a unique position in the sight of Allah and in the sight of his Rasul sallallahu alayhi wasallam and that they deserved that merit and virtue so you can imagine how great the virtue of hijrah was at the time of the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam from the time of his hijrah and slightly before till the conquest of makkah al-mukarramah it was a unique act of devotion, a unique act of ibadah. That's why at the beginning of Sahih al-Bukhari, and in the beginning of many of the books, we have the famous hadith of Umar ibn al-Khattab, radiyallahu about hijrah. And I've commented on this on numerous occasions. So the hijrah is mentioned with sincerity of intention. 
So the Prophet ﷺ says, deeds are only by intention. So whoever's... And a man will only receive what he has intended. So whoever's hijrah is to Allah and his Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, then his hijrah is indeed to Allah and his Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And whoever's hijrah is to the world that he wishes to acquire or a woman that he seeks to marry, then his hijrah is to that which he has emigrated. So of all the deeds of Islam, when speaking about sincerity of intention and purity of motive, the Prophet ﷺ spoke about the hijrah. Because at that time, indeed, that was the greatest deed. So, hijrah was unique. And it wasn't just a simple journey from A to B. There was a lot that led up to the hijrah. And I've explained this in my talk, Hijrah Watershed. But... Just to recap, when the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was born in Mecca, that's where he lived, where he spent his childhood, where he grew up. When he was finally, that's where he was married, that's where his wife was from, that's where his children were born. All of his children, with the exception of Ibrahim radiyallahu anhu, was born in the eighth year of Hijrah. With his exception, all of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam's children were born in Mecca. And his sons that were born there were also buried there. So the Prophet ﷺ was born, he lived, he grew up, spent his child, his youth, his middle age. All of it in Makkah al-Mukarramah. All the way till 53 years. He loved this city. He loved the city not only as his birthplace in his hometown, because of that natural inclination and devotion and attachment, but also because it was, a ho- it was a holy city. That was the holy city of Mecca. He was a city of Sayyidina Ismail alayhi salam. He was a city of the Kaaba. At the age of 40 when he was given prophethood, the Prophet ﷺ proclaimed his message and he began preaching secretly at first and then openly. Eventually the Quraysh, they did not take kindly to his message. And at first they taunted him, they jibed at him, they sneered at him. Then they hurled verbal insults at him and at his followers. Eventually this escalated until the verbal harassment turned into physical persecution. The mental, verbal and emotional abuse meted out to the Muslims escalated into direct physical abuse. And physical abuse may be a light term. They were actually hounded, beaten, whipped, tortured and killed, even tortured to death. Just like Sumiyah radiyallahu anha. She was the first Muslim to die in Islam as a result of her beliefs. And she died under severe torture. The first shaheed, the first martyr of Islam is a woman. Sumiya radiyallahu anha. The mother of Ammar ibn Yasir radiyallahu When, and the persecution was severe, and I'll expand on this later. Because of the persecution, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, the Muslims were weak in strength. They were few in number. They had no authority, central power. They were a small group 
disparate, scattered. They weren't even able to pray in congregation. And because of the tribal society, they were unable to defend themselves or others. They relied on the protection of their families. So those Muslims who were either refugees or foreigners, or who were slaves or freed slaves, these Muslims were extremely vulnerable because they did not have the protection of their families or clans and tribes. This is why they were tortured and persecuted and many of the others were left. Not because they were treated well or because the others were members of the aristocracy or nobility or they were wealthy or powerful in their own right. That wasn't the case. It's because they belonged to powerful families and clans. And that's how the society of Mecca was structured. So they escaped not because of any lack of desire to hurt them on the part of the mushrikeen, on the part of the pagan Quraysh, but rather because of that balance of power. The Quraysh knew that hurting and harming or persecuting these people, physically or torturing them, will result in a confrontation with their families, their kin and clan. And that's not something they could afford. So... They victimized and picked out and they isolated the weaker members of the Muslim community. Those who did not have any backup, those who did not have the protection of families or clans and tribes. And these weak Sahaba radiallahu anhum, weak not in their faith, but weak because of their lack of family or clan protection, they were the ones who were picked up one by one and physically tortured. The other Sahaba radiallahu anhum, including Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, continued to suffer in verbal and emotional abuse. But these Sahaba radiallahu anhum were physically tortured and the others were helpless. So when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam saw this, he eventually advised the Sahaba radiallahu anhum approximately five years after receiving the revelation of the Qur'an in the 45th year of his life, the Prophet ﷺ advised the Muslims to travel to Abyssinia, which was just across the Red Sea. There, in modern-day Ethiopia. So the Prophet ﷺ advised the Sahaba anhum to do hijrah. And he said, there is a just king. And that region was autonomous, although it was autonomous, they had their own rule, their own empire, but it was weaker than the Persian and the Byzantine Roman empires to the north. But theirs was a powerful kingdom in their own right. And the ruler was uh, the Najashi. That was actually, Najashi was a title just like Qaisar for Caesar for a Roman ruler and Kisra Khosrows for a Persian ruler. Najashi was a title for, a generic title for any of the Abyssinian rulers. So the Prophet sallallahu advised him to travel to Abyssinia which was actually a Christian kingdom 
and he advised them that there is a just king. No one who travels there and takes refuge there by him suffers any injustice. And even though it was a Christian kingdom, they knew that they would be given liberty to worship freely and to live in peace and security. So the Prophet ﷺ advised the Sahaba عنهم, that whoever of you can, then emigrate to Hijrah, to Abyssinia. Now, even that was a great Hijrah. It wasn't easy, subhanAllah. Leaving one's home city, traveling across the desert. And when the Quraysh found out that the Muslims were leaving Mecca, they were incensed, they were enraged. And they actually pursued them in order to bring them back. Forcibly, even in chains. And yet, men, women and families made that hijrah. That's how devoted they were to their religion and to their deen. They risked everything. Even members of the Prophet ﷺ's family, they did hijrah. So, they emigrated to Abyssinia. Some of them, those who could, but the others couldn't. And they continued to suffer. Then, there was a second wave of emigration from Mecca to Abyssinia. That's known as the second journey to Hijrah, the second wave. And then finally, approximately in the seventh year of Hijrah, the Quraysh were now quite exasperated because their attempts to even bring back the Muslims from Abyssinia had failed miserably. So now they were enraged that things, they really stepped up their persecution and their torture. And they targeted more and more Muslims with, with even more abandon than before. Eventually, as a result, they even tried to pressure Abu Talib into renouncing his protection for his nephew. But Abu Talib, he continued to protect the Prophet ﷺ. I'll explain again when we're actually doing the hadith about jiwar and the concept of protection, and how it worked, and what it really meant in Arab society at the time. Eventually, the Quraysh decided that if Abu Talib refuses to hand over Muhammad to us, or to renounce his protection, and get out of the way between us and him, then we will boycott, we will punish Banu Hashim too, the family of the, the clan of the Prophet So they did. They punished the whole of Banu Hashim. And that led to the boycott. So for approximately just over two years from the seventh year before, sorry, not the seventh, I said seventh year before of Hijrah, no, seven years after the prophethood of the Prophet till for just over two years, under three years, the Quraysh enforced a boycott of the family of the Prophet ﷺ and members of his clan and another clan too. Eventually, that was disrupted and that boycott came to an end and it was a very severe boycott. It was known as the boycott in Shi'ibi Abi Talib in the Valley of Abu Talib. It wasn't actually a whole valley, but there was a part of Medina, which was known as Shi'ibu Abi Talib, a part of Mecca. And they were all left there and abandoned. People could not trade with them. People could not marry with them. People could not help them in any way. Things were so severe 
Uh, it's reported that they resorted to eat chewing on leather in order to satisfy their hunger. Eventually, the boycott ended, and not not long thereafter, the Prophet sallallahu two pillars of support both died in the same year. One, his uncle Abu Talib, and two, his beloved wife Umm Muminin Khadija radiyallahu anha. That was a severe, these were two great calamities in that single year for the Prophet ﷺ. Things were critical now, for a number of reasons. The Prophet ﷺ hitherto had always been verbally and emotionally persecuted. And on a few occasions, although he wasn't physically harmed or physically hit per se... However, he was harassed, and we may recall the story of the Prophet ﷺ performing salah in the Haram, and the Quraysh were gathered around the Kaaba, Abu Jahl and his cronies. And the Prophet ﷺ was praying, and they were watching him, and then Abu Jahl said, which one of you will rise and go to such and such a family whose she-camel has just recently given birth? So a camel is a huge animal. So the she-camel has just recently given birth. The afterbirth and the amniotic sac, it's all still there. Which one of you will go and collect that? and dump it on the back of Muhammad whilst he is in prostration. So the worst of the group stood up and he went and he fetched that filth, the afterbirth of the she-camel, the amniotic sac, the guts and the blood. And he brought that filth and impurity and exactly when the Prophet ﷺ was in sujood, in prostration, he dumped it on his noble back. The weight of it prevented the Prophet ﷺ from rising from sujood. And when he did that, the others, from the comfort of their seating, right next to the Kaaba, they began pointing at the Prophet ﷺ, pointing and laughing and digging at each other, just as people point and laugh at each other. They were pointing at the Prophet ﷺ and goading each other to watch, to observe and to laugh. Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu he was present. He says, I wish I could have done something. But again, he was one of those weak sahaba radiyallahu anhum who couldn't do much. He had been physically beaten unconscious himself. So just then, Fatima radiyallahu anha, someone went and informed the family of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Fatima radiyallahu anha was a little girl at the time. She came running and she bravely pushed away and shoved that weight of filth from the back of the Prophet ﷺ. And then that little young girl, she stood in the haram, shouting at and abusing the leaders of the Quraysh. Then they realized, they must have re- because they did not say anything in, back to Fatima radiallahu anha, even though she was just a child. She shamed them that a child of her age 
was able to see the evil of what they were doing, regardless of their difference with the Prophet And they, as not just adults, but chieftains of the Quraysh, they prided themselves on their nobility, on their honor, on their dignity, on their leadership of the Quraysh, on their being the custodians of the Kaaba. And yet in their enmity towards the Messenger wasallam, their enmity blinded them. And it caused them to sink so low that they resorted to such despicable behavior. Throughout history, noble men have respected even their enemies. So... Fatima radiyallahu anha shamed them into silence. And then the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam rose and then he prayed to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, naming every single one of them. Allahumma alayka bi abi jahlin amr ibn Hisham. Allahumma alayka. O Allah, seize Abu Jahl amr ibn Hisham. O Allah, seize Utbah. O Allah, seize Shaybah. Oh Allah, seize Funa, Funa, and he named all of them. That's when they feared for themselves. Because they knew that the Prophet ﷺ was a trustworthy, honest person. They recognized and they acknowledged the sanctity of the Kaaba. And they also believed that prayers were answered around them, in and around the Kaaba. So they feared for themselves. Allah accepted the dua. But the manifestation of the acceptance of the Prophet Wasallam's prayer and supplication was not immediate. It happened almost 10 years later in the Battle of Badr. When Abdullah ibn Mas'ud anhu says, I saw those named ones all lying in the well of Badr, dead. So the Prophet Wasallam's dua was accepted by Allah immediately. But the manifestation of the dua was not to come, was not to appear till many, many years later. So the Prophet ﷺ still suffered physical harassment in that manner and in a similar manner. But at least till the 50th year of his life, he had the protection of Abu Talib. And as I, again, as I've explained on many occasions, that meant a lot. Because Abu Talib was a leader of the clan of Banu Hashim. Abu Lahab was his brother. But Abu Lahab was still, would still defer to the authority of Abu Talib because he was a leader of the clan. There was always a hierarchy. So being a leader of the clan, what he said went. Whatever he said, his word was final. So Abu Talib granted the Prophet ﷺ his protection, not just as an individual. Ultimately, Abu Talib, he wasn't so rich. He wasn't very rich or powerful in that sense. So even in wealth and trade, he couldn't match the other leaders of the Quraysh. In terms of military power, he couldn't match the, some of the other more powerful tribes, such as Banu Makhzum and others. However, he was still one of the leaders of the clans. And his clan, the clan of Banu Hashim, ultimately wasn't that powerful compared to the others. But it was still a clan. Now, Banu Hashim, the leader was Abu Talib. So when he gave his protection to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, 
all the fo- all the members of the clan deferred to the authority of Abu Talib. They accepted what he said. He was their ruler. He was their leader. His protection meant the protection of the whole clan. No one would oppose him. That was a hierarchy. That was a manner in which they ruled themselves. They organized their society. Now, when Abu Talib passed away, this is why it was, I said he lost two pillars of support. One was Umm al-Mu'mineen Khadija radiyallahu anha, and the other was Abu Talib. Because when Abu Talib passed away, the leadership of the clan of Banu Hashim was transferred to the next brother. And that was Abu Lahab. And Abu Lahab, even though members of his clan did not like him, they still had to respect his authority and his leadership. So they would not rebel. It just wasn't possible for members of the clan to rebel against their leader and divide the clan. So even though they were averse to it, even though they wanted to help the Prophet ﷺ and grant him protection, even though they did not want to align themselves with the rest of the Quraysh, the members of Banu Hashim were now in a very difficult position. And they could not openly support the Prophet ﷺ or give him their protection. Their protection did not mean anything if it went against the decree and decision of the leader of Banu Hashim, Abu Lahab. So as soon as Abu Talib passed away and the protection and the leadership went over to Abu Lahab, Rasulullah lost that protection. And this was a severe blow. This is why he actually started meeting with other tribes. And this is why he even traveled to Ta'if. To see if he could win the support of some, some of the clan, clans, clans there from Banu Thaqif. Which was the most prominent and powerful tribe in the city of Ta'if. So, Makkah and Ta'if were regarded as two, even though they were not very large, but they were comparable. So he went to Banu Thaqif in Ta'if to see if he could gain their protection. But unfortunately, we know the story of Ta'if. The Prophet ﷺ was chased out of the city and physically hurt. Now, because he had lost that power, his condition was such that they felt free to physically hurt him, to make him bleed, to see him fall unconscious. Now his life and person were at risk. Eventually the Prophet ﷺ only gained entry into Makkah al-Mukarramah again because he got the protection of a clan. But it wasn't enough. It was enough to save his life then. But in the long long run, it wasn't enough. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him the gift of Isra and Mi'raj after that. And then during the season, Hajj season, the Prophet ﷺ met with some people from Medina, which was known as Yathrib at the time. Now, the city of Yathrib was an oasis. A few hundred miles north of Makkah al-Mukarramah. It was a very beautiful and fertile oasis. And it consisted of a number of settlements. And there were three main... There were a number of 
powerful tribes and the city was divided. You had three famous Arab tribes, Banu Qaynuqa, Banu Nadir and Banu Quraidha. And you had two powerful Arab tribes, the Aws and the Khazraj. These five tribes were divided into two parties, two alliances. And they had been warring and fighting with each other for generations. And they were involved in such internecine warfare that a war of attrition, that the leaders and the noblemen of the city feared that they would kill themselves eventually and drive each other into the ground unless they were saved. And things were so severe in Yathrib, as it was called at the time, that Allah describes that condition in the Holy Qur'an. وَاَعْتَصِمُوا بِحَبْلِ اللَّهِ جَمِيعًا وَلَا تَفَرَّقُوا وَاذْكُرُوا نِعْمَةَ اللَّهِ عَلَيْكُمْ إِذْ كُنْتُمْ أَعْدَاءً فَأَلَّفَ بَيْنَ قُلُوبِكُمْ فَأَسْبَحْتُمْ بِنِعْمَتِهِ إِخْوَانًا وَكُنْتُمْ عَلَى شَفَى حُفْرَةٍ مِّنَ النَّارِ فَأَنْقَذَكُمْ مِّنْهَا Allah says, and hold on fast collectively to the rope of Allah and do not differ, do not disperse and remember Allah's favor on you when you were enemies, then he reconciled and united your hearts. And thus through his blessing, you became brothers. Even though, وَكُنْتُمْ عَلَى شَفَى حُفْرَةٍ مِّنْ نَارٍ مِّنَ النَّارٍ Even though before you were on the edge of a pit of the fire, فَأَنْقَذَكُمْ مِنْهَا So Allah saved you from it. Now we've all heard this verse before and its translation and meaning. We're familiar with it. It's a very common verse. But this is what it actually refers to when Allah says, Remember when you were enemies. Everyone's heard the beginning. وَاَعْتَصِمُوا بِحَبْلِ اللَّهِ جَمِيعًا وَلَا تَفَرَّقُوا And the verse meaning, Hold on fast to the rope of Allah, do not differ and disperse. The verse continues, وَذْكُرُوا نِعْمَةَ اللَّهِ عَلَيْكُمْ إِذْ كُنْتُمْ أَعْدَاءً And remember when you were bitter enemies of one another. And then Allah reconciled and united your heart. So this is in reference to the ancient rivalry and the bitter enmity between the Aws and the Khazraj, the two main tribes of Medina. And in fact, they were ultimately one tribe because their great-great-great-great-grandmother was called Qayla. And the Aws and the Khazraj together were known as the Banu Qayla, the children of Qayla. And they were emigrants from the, from the south of Arabia, from Yemen to Medina. So Aws and Khazraj were two tribes whose origins actually lay in southern Arabia, in modern-day Yemen. And they had traveled towards, uh, up north towards Medina. And it was one single tribe known as Abu Qayla. And then eventually over generations it split into uh, two sub-tribes. And they were the Aws and Khazraj. So ultimately they were cousins. But they were bitter rivals and enemies of one another to such a degree that they, because of their warring and, uh, against each other, the three Jewish tribes of Medina of Yathrib at the time, they aligned themselves with the Aws and the Khazraj, and they fought against each other. So things were terrible, in a terrible state, and this is what the Qur'an refers to, that you were on the pit, you were on the edge of the pit of the fire, of a pit of the fire, and Allah saved you from it. So what? how did Allah save them? And what was that blessing of Allah 
through which Allah reconciled their hearts and united them. Ultimately, it was Islam and the Prophet ﷺ. So they were very concerned about their situation in Yathrib. And they were looking for a saviour. They weren't actually looking into religion. Some of them individually were, just as some in Mecca were. But as a community, as a society, they just wanted somebody to save them from themselves. And in that pursuit, a group of them came across the Prophet ﷺ in Hajj, in the season of Hajj, in Mecca. So they met the Prophet ﷺ, they were inspired by what he said to them. Rasulullah ﷺ, even during Hajj, and all the fairs, all the fairs that would take place, the trade fairs, the religious fairs, the fairs of pilgrimage, the fairs of poetry, Prophet ﷺ would gather these, would attend these fairs, merely to give da'wah and merely to invite the people. And even during Hajj, which was their largest gathering, Abu Lahab, his own uncle, far from assisting him, far from protecting him like his noble brother Abu Talib before him had done, regardless of whether he agreed with him or disagreed with him, one of the reasons why Abu Lahab opposed the Prophet and refused protection was that Abu Lahab had extensive dealings, financial dealings, and he had commercial interests with the other leaders of the Quraysh. So ultimately he put money before his own nephew. Of course, he put this dunya and this world before the next life. But even when it came to his own blood nephew, his, his blood brother's son, Abu Lahab gave preference to money and to trade and to business and his friendship with the chieftains of the Quraysh over his own nephew. So Abu Lahab, far from protecting the Prophet ﷺ, what he would do is when the Prophet ﷺ would go from group to group in the season of Hajj, Abu Lahab would follow him. And as the Prophet ﷺ would speak to these groups who had come from all over Arabia and invite them to Islam, Abu Lahab would be behind him throwing pebbles at him. And he would say, so he would speak to one group and move on, Abu Lahab would throw pebbles at him from behind and walk up to the same group and say, don't listen to him, he's my nephew, some mental plague has afflicted him, he is mad. And then when he would move on to the next group, Abu Lahab would follow in his footsteps and speak to the next group. That's how he would speak of his own nephew. So on one of those visits to various groups, the people of Medina, a very small group, came across the Prophet ﷺ. He spoke to them. He invited them. They liked what he said. And eventually they promised to go back to Yathrib and speak to others and come back again. Eventually... Twelve of them gave bay'ah to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. This is known as bay'atul al ula the first bay'ah of the aqaba, the first pledge of aqaba. And the following year, they gave 75 of them, 73 men and two women came and from Medina. And they gave bay'ah to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. That was known as bay'atul al-Aqaba the second bay'ah of Aqaba. We did Surah Al-Balad only last month. 
And in there Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions, So why doesn't he scale the ascent? Why doesn't he attempt the ascent? And I explain the meaning of aqabah then. And it's the same thing. Aqabah means a very difficult mountain path or an ascent which is difficult to climb. And wherever they had such a natural feature of the terrain, they would call it Aqaba. So Aqaba is to be found in many different places throughout Arabia, uh, where it's actually been named Aqaba. One of them is on the outskirts of Mecca and Mina. And that is known as the Aqaba. That's where, that's where the Bay'ah took place. So it's referred to as Bay'atul Aqaba al-Ula and Bay'atul Aqaba al-Thaniya, the first and the second pledge of Aqaba. So in the second pledge, which was a much more serious one, because 75 of them pledged, they invited the Prophet ﷺ to come to the city of Yathrib, and their purpose of inviting him was that initially they were eager to invite him merely to save them. Save, their, save them as a community, as a society. Then when he invited them to Islam and they heard his message, now they were eager for him to in, come and save their community and save their souls. To save them from themselves and save their belief, to save their hearts and minds, save their souls. So the Prophet ﷺ agreed that he would come. That was the final bay'ah. Eventually, after that, the Prophet ﷺ made an intention to travel to Medina. And he advised the Sahaba anhum to travel uh, as soon as they could. Eventually, one by one, in small groups, the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum began traveling to Medina. Some of them had traveled before as well, before the second bay'ah of Aqaba. In fact, Mus'ab ibn Umayr radiyallahu anhu had traveled much before, and he remained there inviting people to Islam and actually teaching them the Qur'an. These were some of the introductory factors that led up to the actual hijrah. Eventually... After the second bay'ah of Aqaba, Prophet things became even more intense. And when the Quraysh found out that Muhammad has now reached a position whereby he is creating alliances with people from other places, such as the city-state of Yathrib. And for them, the city-state of Yathrib was a rival. So you had the city-state of Mecca and you had the city-state of Yathrib. And if he won the support of a whole city and they gave him their pledge of protection, then that was extremely serious. This was now a threat to them in every way. So the Quraysh decided to, once and for all, end this whole affair and now they began plotting and scheming against the very life of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And that's referred to in the Holy Qur'an when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَإِذْ يَمْكُرُ بِكَ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا لِيُثْبِتُوكَ أَوْ يَقْتُلُوكَ أَوْ يُخْرِجُوكَ وَيَمْكُرُونَ وَيَمْكُرُوا اللَّهُ اللَّهُ خَيْرُ الْمَاكِرِينَ Allah says, and remember, when those who disbelieved, they were plotting against you. In that, they wanted to لِيُثْبِتُوكَ imprison Lithbutuk meaning bind you, bind you there. And the meaning of binding the Prophet ﷺ there is to imprison him. 
So to imprison him in Mecca, so he would have no freedom to travel. Now, we're not talking about the Quraysh attacking the weak Muslims, or those without protection. Now they came straight for Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So they were scheming and plotting and planning and conferring between themselves to either imprison the Prophet permanently so that to actually chain him and shackle him so that he would he would be imprisoned forever until he renounced his faith or he pledged not to preach the message. And they conferred amongst themselves. So some of them suggested that let's imprison him. And the manner of imprisonment would be that we just chain Muhammad and shackle him and keep him in chains and keep him in bondage forever. So he would not be able to move, let alone gather, associate with others or preach. He won't be able to move. But the others immediately dismissed the idea. Then... Some of them suggested that let's banish him from Mecca. We don't want him in our city. So let's banish him from the city. Others objected to that. Just as others objected to the first suggestion, saying that eventually his followers will come and free him. And this suggestion that we banish him, they said this is even more dangerous and foolish because he will then be free to do what he wishes outside the city. We will have no control over him. So they were at a, at a loss as to what to do about the Prophet Muhammad Then finally they came to the final suggestion, which according to the historical narrations was made by Abu Jahl. Abu Jahl said, we should kill him. And the manner of killing would be, the reason they hadn't done it till now, is because that's how the tribal society worked. If one person killed another, then there was no law. The only law was a tribal law of retaliation. If one member, of a, if one member was killed, then justice demanded that the others had a right to kill him. And if they killed him, and his mem- the members of his tribe didn't accept, then they would retaliate against the wider, uh, against the other tribe, and this in itself would lead to a raging, ongoing battle over many generations. So the there was this balance of power. So for this fear, nobody would kill anybody. And if they did, then it, only if it was justified. And if it was a, a rash act, then this led to battles and wars between them. So this was their balance of power. This is what preventing, prevented them from going out and killing the Prophet ﷺ randomly. So according to the historical narrations, Abu Jahl, when he came up with this suggestion... Of course, they had already had the idea of killing him before, but how was it to be done? If they killed him, Banu Hashim would retaliate. If Banu Hashim retaliated, then Banu Hashim would gain the protection of the uh, wider clan, the 
the parent clan of Banu uh, Abd Manaf. So it, w- it wouldn't just be a, a battle with Banu Hashim, it would be Banu Abd Manaf too. So Abu Jahl came up with the evil suggestion that what we should do is we should get some young warriors from all of the clans and tribes and they should all go collectively and together, simultaneously, in synchrony, they should spear Muhammad to death. So by, by doing so, his blood will be divided over all the clans and tribes. And Banu Abd Manaf will not be able to fight and resist everybody. So they will finally settle for dia, meaning blood money, blood rates. Because that's how the Arabs would work. Sometimes, uh, they, through negotiation, they would agree to accept blood money rather than actually taking the assailant's life. So, as compensation. So... Abu Jahl said, they won't be able to retaliate against all the tribes because we will all share the responsibility of killing Muhammad. So they agreed to his idea and according to historical narrations, that's what they intended to do. But the Qur'an does refer to this with the words, and remember, And remember when those who disbelieved were plotting against you, that they would imprison you or kill you or banish you and remove you from the city. And they were plotting, and Allah planned. Allah was planning. And Allah is the best of planners. So they then, when things became so serious, then the Prophet ﷺ intended to travel. But do remember, it wasn't like he didn't want to travel beforehand, or he never made the intention, even with the hijrah. The Prophet ﷺ did not do anything of his own accord until he was given permission and granted a command by Allah. Regardless of the risk to his life, the Prophet ﷺ did not move from Mecca, even though most of his companions had left. All of them, even Umar ibn Khattab had left, and the other Sahaba had left. Approximately 70 to 80 Sahaba had already done hijrah before Rasulullah. Now only he and members of his family remained, and Sayyidina Abu Bakr as Siddiq, his best friend. He was waiting for permission from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he had seen he had seen the oasis of Medina in a dream. And that's when he told the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum that I have been shown my place of hijrah. And it's an oasis. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam actually thought it was somewhere else. Then he realized it was Yathrib. So these were the introductory factors that led up to the emigration, the hijrah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And then... He finally decided to do hijrah. Uh, there is that historical narration, that story of the young warriors of the Quraysh gathering around the house of the Prophet ﷺ, intending to kill him. And then it's quite possible they did this after learning that the Prophet ﷺ wanted to do hijrah. However, that, that is one narration. And then... But many ulama have actually questioned the reliability of those narrations. And I'll explain that when we actually do the hadith.
But in essence, the Prophet ﷺ did hijrah. And he emigrated from Mecca. And that's the beginning of the hadith. So this was just a brief, intro- well, this was just an introduction. Inshallah, let's begin the actual hadith. And we will continue next week. I won't be giving any background explanations, but we will concentrate on the hadith and its words. So for those of you who are following, is hadith number 3905 from Sahih al-Bukhari, from Kitab al-Manaqib al-Ansar, Babu Hijrat al-Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, wa ashabihi ila al-Madinah. And for those who are doing, who are following from al-Tajreed al-Sarih, the summarized version is 1593. وبالإسناد المتصل مني إلى الإمام البخاري رحمه الله قال حدثنا يحيى بن بكير قال حدثنا الليث عن عقيل قال ابن شهاب فأخبرني عروة بن الزبير أن عائشة رضي الله عنها This is the chain of narration Imam Bukhari's teacher is Yahya ibn Bukair who relates his hadith from الليث who relates from عقيل بن خالد who relates from Ibn Shihab al-Zuhri, who himself relates from Urwat ibn Zubayr. Urwat ibn Zubayr was the son of Zubayr ibn al-Awwam and the brother of Abdullah ibn Zubayr radiyallahu anhum. And he relates from his auntie, Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha. His mother, his mother was Asma bint Abi Bakr al-Siddiq. So this hadith is about his grandfather. And he relates it from his auntie, his mother's sister, Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha. So, فَأَخْبَرَنِي عُوَّةُ بْنُ الزُّبَيْرِ Ibn Shihab al-Zuhri says, عُوَّةُ بْنُ الزُّبَيْرِ relates, inform me, أَنَّ عَائِشَةَ رَضِيَ anha زَوْجَ النَّبِيَّ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ قَالَتْ That Umm al-Mu'mineen, that Aisha radiyallahu anha, the wife of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, she said, لَمْ أَعْقِلْ أَبَوَيَّ I do not remember my parents at all. Illa wahuma deen, except that they were both following the religion. and not a single day passed by us. Illa yatina fihi Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, except that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam would come tarafayin nahar at both ends of the day. Bukratun wa'ashiyah, in the morning and in the evening. فَلَمَّ بْتُلِيَ الْمُسْلِمُونَ Then when the Muslims were tested, خَرَجَ أَبُو بَكْرٍ مُهَاجِرًا نَحْوَ أَرْضِ الْحَبَشَةِ Abu Bakr radiyallahu anhu, he left, emigrating towards the land of the Abyssinians. I'll end there. This, this was just a translation. Uh, I just wanted to start the hadith. Uh, it, it is quite long. Inshallah, we'll continue from next week. We will actually do the hadith. It's quite, in fact, it's a number of pages. So inshallah, we'll continue next week. Um, we will do the hadith proper. So please continue to come yourselves and invite others also. وصلى الله وسلم على عبده ورسول نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين سبحانك اللهم وبحمدك نشهد والله لا إله إلا أنت نستغفرك ونتوب إليك. This lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyadul Haq and has been brought to you by Al Kotha Productions. For additional lectures and products. 
please visit www.akstore.com. We can also be contacted by phone on 0044-121-771-3777 or by email via sales at akstore.com. Produced under license by Alcotha Productions, all rights reserved for Alcotha Productions and the author. Any unauthorized distribution, broadcasting or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright.